Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Scholarly Communication, the podcast about how knowledge gets known. I'm Daniel Shea, your host for today's interview with Hilary Glassman Deal and Andrew Northern, both teachers of English for academic purposes at the Centre for Academic English, Imperial College London. All scientists write, And anyone studying to become a scientist, well, he or she must write too. It's only logical, isn't it? Well, then, why do so many students in the STEM fields not receive sufficient guidance and practice in writing science? And why, too, do so many editors and reviewers and non-scientists complain about the state of scientific prose? Sentences bloated and bursting, words tenuous in meaning, ambiguous in sense, whole passages of text that seem to be passing in no particular direction. I exaggerate, of course, but not a lot. Take a look yourself in the many journals publishing the bulk of science, but look even in the top venues where every scientist wants to see their name. There you'll find the beasts of scientific prose. The odd thing, though, about this problem of unclear and ineffective communication is that very many authors themselves don't notice it, at least not while they're writing their own papers. This is understandable when you consider that scientists publish tens and tens of papers, a hundred and more. Can there really be anything wrong when these writing scientists seem to be having so much success? Yes, there can. There are results which go published, but unnoticed. There are methods which cause more confusion than understanding. There are interpretations based on good ideas, but expressed in bad prose. Even the most published and most cited author will agree that their writing can do more for their research when they receive such professional writing support as is provided by the Centre for Academic English at Imperial College London. Have a listen for yourself. Here's the kind of difference that I mean. This is one paragraph taken at random from a scientific journal. First, the published version, and second, my edited version. Now, 
First, a disclaimer. I'm aware that I'm editing here in the air, so to speak, and putting before your ear what you should have before your eye. Nonetheless, I think you will hear the difference. And besides, the two versions are posted on the NBN site, so you can have a look too. Here's the published version. Cell extrinsic and intrinsic factors contribute to breast cancer progression. Outside the cell, an increase in the stiffness, density, and alignment of collagen fibrils is observed during breast cancer progression. Mature collagen fibrils provide tracks along which breast cancer cells migrate. Meanwhile, cell intrinsic epithelial to mesenchymal transition, EMT, is associated with cancer progression and metastasis. During EMT, epithelial cells undergo changes in gene expression, resulting in loss of cell-cell adhesions and adoption of a migration phenotype. An array of mechanisms, including upregulation of soluble TGF-beta, is implicated in inducing EMT during cancer development. Understanding how EMT affects fibril migration will provide insights into the etiology of breast cancer and help identify potential therapeutic targets. That was the published version, and now the edited version of this same text. Breast cancer progression occurs at both cell extrinsic and cell intrinsic levels. At the extrinsic level, Breast cancer cells migrate along the tracks that form in mature collagen fibers when collagen fibrils increase in stiffness, density, and alignment. At the cell intrinsic level, metastasis and general cancer progression compound when epithelial cells lose cell-cell adhesion and adopt a migration phenotype in a process known as epithelial to mesenchymal transition, EMT. The induction of EMT during cancer development is currently attributable to such mechanisms as upregulation of soluble TGF-beta, but a clear mechanistic delineation of EMT, and also a detailed explanation for EMT influence on fibril migration, will help identify the etiology of breast cancer, select potential therapeutic targets, and ultimately limit breast cancer progression. That was my edited version. So from the published version to my edited version, the meaning doesn't change. And that's one reason that some people might have for wondering, why bother? But my edits make the message ring loud and clear, so that the language becomes a window on the research. And that is the reason why so many scientists at Imperial College know what they have in their center for academic English. So let's begin today's episode. Hilary glassman Deal. Andrew Northern, Center for Academic English. Hilary, Andrew, welcome to Scholarly Communication. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I'm going to assume that the words center and for are definitely workable words for our listeners, and though I probably could assume as much for academic and English on their own, the two in combination academic English um, have a sort of special meaning, or they might anyway. So let's perhaps start then at the foundation of things. And what is it to both of you that academic English um, mean? And perhaps sometimes this helps people to define things. What is it that they don't mean? Well, well I think that Andrew would probably agree that we, we think in terms of academic communication rather than having too much of a focus 
on the English. And I think that's partly because our experience with people whose first language is English tends to show us the same things and the same issues as for those whose first language is not English. So it's much more about the ability to communicate high-level, complex information in a, in, a clear, in a clear way with a clear narrative and a clear message rather than focusing on the English. I don't know, Andrew, does that jibe with what you're thinking about what we work, how we're working? I think it, it definitely does. And I think it's also worth pointing out that when someone arrives in a higher education context, they it's no longer that they're learning English. It's that they're learning to communicate uh, for specific tasks and um, increasingly to communicate with each other uh, within and beyond their discipline. And so we think academic STEM communication teacher or specialist um, is, is a better description. Also, when I think when you're focusing on the English, you do get pulled back in time for the student to the world of grammar and rules and things that aren't as instrumental or strategic as they just doesn't represent their current needs. I mean, what Andrew was saying something that we find absolutely true. The time for learning English is really over. What you need to be able to do is communicate strategically rather than improve your grammar skills so we're very restrict we really restrict what we do in terms of actually looking at english as a language we're much more interested in looking at stem communication as as a as a target this is going to be interesting to very many people. I, I, I entirely know what you're talking about, and I'm sure some of our listeners will as well who are working in this area. But the, let's say, the more frequent cases, I'm going to assume something, correct me if I'm wrong, the more frequent case will probably be that somebody from outside the area of communication, rhetoric, or modern languages will come to a center of your sort and will have precisely on their mind these questions of vocabulary, rules, and grammar. And to pick up some of your key words, you're going to have to instruct them in being instrumental, being strategic, creating a narrative. So perhaps start with the first end of this uh, scenario. Why is it that you think that so many people really just automatically associate this entire area of work with language? Partly historical, I think. Um where the field has, has come from, but we're more interested in where the field is going. So we, in our centre, our focus is, is outward towards the institution and the needs of the institution. And that's very much for our institution, Imperial College London, to communicate scientific research um, and its impact. Um, so I think with academic English, really the emphasis is on the um, academic communication, communication of academic work? I think it's also different, I mean, to be fair to other institutions and the broader field of, uh, of academic English, let's say, there's quite a big difference between STEM, communication in STEM and communication in, let's say, the humanities, where in a sense, the the words are the thoughts, are the product, are that that's what you're dealing in. In STEM, you're dealing essentially in translating, if you like, 
a reality into words rather than just dealing with how to express your own thoughts and ideas. And I think that does take in, in institutions like ours that really soft pedals any focus that you might have on elegant or eloquent communication and tends to boil it down to almost a codified method of communicating. So I, I think for us, it is slightly different than it would be. I mean, I, I personally, I don't know about Andrew, but I wouldn't imagine using the approach that we take with, let's say, philosophy students. I don't think, I think it's a different game. I agree. And to your point about rules as well, this is one of the limitations we see and and why our kind of work is so relevant. A lot of science guidance is kind of couched in the terms of rules and that's often sort of what students want to know when they're starting out but they soon become aware that you can't really boil it down to rules because it's about context so a common one for us is should we use the passive does science writing always use the passive and for us we we never want to be prescriptive about this i mean it's checking the editorial guidelines of course but more than that it's to do with communication So if you've got um, X approach was used, perhaps that's very clear in the method section who the agent is, the researcher. But as soon as you move that into an abstract where it's with sentences about previous research as well, that's when you might want to switch it into the active. uh, Here we, we use X method because it's, again, about the context and about the communication and essentially about Uh, resolving ambiguity and making the ownership as explicit as possible. So you've got to use all the tools at your disposal rather than stick to one-size-fits-all guidelines and rules, I think. I think that uh, that example is is really, really good because what it shows you is that the grammar or guidance issues related to the passive only begin to have any meaning or relevance in a particular context. And the context that we are always looking at here is ownership of that sentence. Who who actually did that work? Whose results are being reported here? So it's not relevant to talk about passive in a kind of blanket way, like it's always a good idea or it's, or it's never a good idea, or even follow the norms of your journal. It's much more nuanced than that. It's if you say... Um, I don't know, in the abstract, we we might see a sentence, even in the active, like results suggest that blah, blah, blah. And it's completely unclear whether these are the results in that paper or the the known results in the literature. So what Andrew was saying, that ownership issues are really, that's what would drive any discussion of passive use, you know, perhaps in tandem with conventions and norms in a journal, but certainly it would override it. And this would then very clearly establish, uh, I, I think, illustrate perfectly for the listeners, the distinction that you're talking about when you have on the one hand, the grammar, the rules and the vocabulary, especially these rules, as opposed to the other sorts of words that you were using before, strategic and instrumental, or as, or as Andrew puts it, um, in a context, we're not dealing with uh, the language and how it most frequently would need to be used, uh, perhaps even its particular genre or an even more abstract level, what is correct or incorrect when it comes to the form of the verb. We're at the level of what needs to be done, or as you say, Hillary, what needs to be owned and what not. Yeah, and, and by him. 
Um, this exactly. has, this... could, could I also make a point about Please, yeah. um, the editing in the air example that um, we we began with? Because I think that example really illustrates the process. So as Hilary said, it's working with someone in STEM who has ownership of their work. And so for us, it's sitting alongside the researcher on an equal footing. And we bring the knowledge of discourse and communication. And that's not to be undervalued, I think, because if you look at the edited version that you read out, you can immediately feel, even from the way you're reading it, you can hear that it's gotten a better flow because of the way that uh, the beginning of the sentences are helpful. So picking up on extrinsic and intrinsic level rather than inventing a new sentence start, which would cast adrift the reader, um, picking up on those technical terms EMT at the beginning of the next sentence so that it flows nicely and so that the weight is at the end of the sentence. And I, I even noticed at the end that you said um, a key impact ultimately limit breast cancer progression, and that's that's explicit real-world impact. And so the reader leaves with an impression of exactly what this research can do. So although you said that the first one is published, and we often do see it gets through peer-reviewed despite not being effective, and maybe it then reaches uh, a small disciplinary community, we often see in the future that these papers are going to panels at the faculty level, so more of an interdisciplinary audience, and then their impact is being assessed. And so by helping people from the very beginning with these principles of communication, making the writing engaging, making it flow, and showing explicit impact of their work, we're really helping them with their career um, because the paper will live with them uh, forever. And who knows who's going to read it in the future um, and, and what discipline that person might come from. Another thing that people often say is uh, if, uh, to, to refer back to our editing in the air there, if you take something that's been published and you go and edit it, aren't you wasting your time? But I think in science, it's clearly established. I mean, Andrew, you're making one very important point in the area of higher uh, education in people's jobs and in faculties. But it's also clearly established in uh, science that it's not just the publication that you want. It's the citation that you want. And when people get the message that you're sending out there, when they see the new take that you have on the um, results that you've obtained, then they're going to follow you. And if they don't, you might just have uh, one or two citations and sit somewhere in the archive of the internet. I think citation is really important, but also I just think in its purest form, communication, as we're seeing in, in society, the importance of communicating not only the science, but the scientific way of of thinking and the rigor and the um, supporting uh, facts with, with um, empirical evidence. And so the better a job people can do with that, the more wider impact their work's going to have, I think. What we're seeing, and I think what everybody is seeing, is, is that there is a need for scientists to be able to communicate outside of their micro-community where there's a very high level of shared knowledge and a very high level of assumed shared knowledge as well. But given that your your work, and we see it every day, we can see it in, in all the design engineering that is going on now, the bridges and the connections with other fields tells us that science is becoming more interdisciplinary by the minute. And 
given that now your your access is not to research in your field, your access now is to all research everywhere in every field via Google Scholar. So what we can what we're seeing is that there is a real need for students for, for, for writers if they even now, let alone in the future, believe that their work might need or be of interest to a wider access group or to other stakeholders. The communication changes at that point because you can't any longer have the same shared knowledge and have the same assumptions. You've got to be able to be more patient and respectful of your reader and create that fine balance between feeling that you're being patronising and condescending by explaining things and having, info, on the other hand, having information gaps that actually make your work inaccessible to the next concentric circle, if you like, of, uh, of interdisciplinary readers. So we're working, our, our work is, uh, certainly at Imperial, is operating on so many different levels in terms of narrative, interdisciplinary access, and stepping outside your comfort zone. Something else that Andrew and I, we were talking about this podcast before, we were saying, um, we were talking about the process of peer review and how very often, uh, Andrew was saying very often, you know, something will come back from a a native, a a non-English speaker who's written a text that has a fairly high level of language issues and the response that will come back will be that this is poorly written let's say and we were talking about this and saying you know actually it may not be poorly written it may be very well organized but there are surface language errors but then by this we realized by the same token lots of reviewers themselves science is global lots of reviewers don't have English as their first language. So equally, when they are faced with a text written by a native in a first language English speaker that seems to be very eloquent and very and very nicely written, they may not see the the information loss or the or the that the, they may pass it through because they feel that this is well written. It's written by an English speaker and clearly it's done the right job. But we know from our work that it's no guarantee of good writing. Writing, you can correct all the language and end up with a very, very poor text that doesn't have a clear message, that isn't narrated in any way, that doesn't have a clear direction of travel that the reader can get behind. So it's not, I mean, it, however much you correct it, it won't have that. Well, this 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 gives us this gives us the photographic negative of what people usually think of when they hear academic English. Um, you're you're talking about the scenario where the English flows, perhaps there's even eloquence involved, but it's not actually solid science on the page, is it? Or even if it is, it's it's masking things in ways. I mean, what we know, you know, that that the language that you need to express how committed you are to your results and their value is of central importance. You and being a being able to to uh, to obscure that is is actually not a particularly good skill to have. <laughs> It's it's not it's not ultimately it's not doing anybody any favors if you are able to to obscure that 
with elegant and perhaps, you know, slightly unusual language. It's interesting that when, certainly when I first started working in this field, I could see that people were very impressed by quite obscure, anglicised vocabulary. And watching it over the years, that has become less and less the case. There's been much more um, streamlining, let's say, of the way things are expressed. And all, all for the good, I say, because that's how you get global access to information. That's how you get global access to science. That's you a wonderful... In your, in your, um, in the, 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 uh, the beginning of the podcast, that people are surprised when they produce research research with the results that are published but unnoticed and I thought that was such an interesting thing Daniel published but unnoticed because we often get people coming to us and saying you know we've done this amazing we know it's groundbreaking piece of research and it's just no one seems interested and that's when we start working with them that's when we rewrite refine re-edit, sit down sometimes for hours and hours and hours. And that's that's a, that's actually what I want to hear right now, precisely where you just left off there, Hillary. So you get the author with you, the author who has perhaps published. Um, I know that you're working at uh, the Center for Academic English with also faculty. Um, you're, you're involved at all levels of, of the university, and, and I do want to get to them in a moment. But let's let's stay perhaps at that faculty level, the, the researcher who's publishing level, and you get this person with you, and you have perhaps that next draft manuscript, or perhaps they even bring the manuscript that they last had, and they're asking you just that, yeah, so why did I go unnoticed? Um, give us a bit of a feel for how that first few sets of conversations go. What are the things that you're pointing out to them? What do they learn? What do you learn? Well, look, Andrew will, will join in here and say that the first of all, you have to think about why they trust us why they're coming to us rather than going to a colleague um i mean andrew knows and we we both i mean we were just talking before and saying how many how many was it andrew how many research articles we analyze a year so, yeah, usually uh, around 400 articles i think because the way we work is that we ask for target articles or samples so we don't just deliver some sort of static off-the-shelf advice, generic advice. We we collect and we analyze, and it's really that sort of graph that we go through that keeps us up to date and keeps us relevant and keeps researchers coming to us because we're able to look at the texts from a different perspective. If you think about imperial academics, although we're saying that they're increasingly interdisciplinary, many of them in their day-to-day work are locked into certain groups with shared knowledge. So they don't seem to realize perhaps that the results that are so obvious to them don't speak to the, for themselves beyond their the people they're interacting with on a day-to-day basis. So I think it's as soon as you give them the perspective of a, a first-time reader and, and you talk to them about sort of what's not explicit in the results and how even looking at real target articles, they might think from the guidance in the journal that the results uh, don't comment, they just present. But we know when we analyze the results that a lot of commenting is going on. There's lots of qualitative language around those results um, as to what is significant and uh, what's in good agreement and so on. So 
uh, we we just open their eyes to to what's there on the page, really, and and hopefully we transform the way that they read, and they then feed this into the way that they write, and that's much more sustainable than just correcting, editing, putting our own. Um, we we can't even really edit because of that um, clear water between us and the research. We don't have the research knowledge, so it's really a collaborative effort. Um, but we bring something to the table that they appreciate. Um, it, does, it does come from, I mean, Andrew's word, graft. It's real graft. And it's graft that is, in in most cases, it's not within our control in the sense that we don't decide which research we want to look at as, as input to our understanding of how to write. It's forced upon us because whenever we work, whether it's with postdocs or PhDs or, or the academics, they are, we're asking them to bring us the current research in that area so that we can begin to understand how, it's, how things are communicated. And that changes from year to year. I mean, I was talking to Andrew this morning and I said, you know, if I left this work for a year, it would be the devil of a job to get back in because the communication norms in each field and even the language changes so fast that you've got to to go like the wind in order to keep up to date. You have to be looking at recent research in a particular area and let's be honest we're all a little bit lazy we'd all like to to have material that we can fall back on and use last week last week's and last year's material for this year's course but because we can't do that because we are at the mercy of whatever research articles we are faced with by our students and that we, we ask them for target research in their field in the high impact journals. So there's no escape for us. That, that graft has to be done. And I think it's that graft that gives us the credibility, and going back to what I was saying, that makes them trust us in the first place. And I think without that, you kind of don't have a starting point. You've got to be absolutely on point in terms of understanding what's currently being published in their field, what the recent changes are, and these changes sometimes happen within a few, I mean, Andrew and I sit back to back in an office, okay, in a large office, and sometimes he'll shout across and say, look, can you see this journal has started putting a strap line under the title? And we all crowd around and we say, okay, which other journals are doing that? How's that connected to the to what's inside the research article? Is it a new sentence? Is it a rewrite of, of a sentence? What sentence are they using? So it's that, I think it's, you start from that. You start from doing that hard work and then you're in a sense entitled to sit down and, and somebody will trust you to work with them on a piece of writing that hasn't been successful in order to make it successful. You've done such an excellent job of answering my question, but you've also opened up an entirely different area, which I just find equally fascinating. I mean, first off, it's clear this uh, credibility, this establishment of credibility and how that's done. And um, in that same move, though, you finally put the nail in the coffin of the generic <laughs> the generic academic english course the course that has established materials that has you know 
five years old materials that just gets rolled out and the next person comes in for a semester and teaches it to a wild group, a wild collection of people in front of them who want to write this thing called academic English. No, that's that's not, I mean, at least for STEM, you've made it entirely clear that this 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 yeah. is not going to work. And, and the pace of change makes another thing entirely clear. We're dealing with high-level rhetoric here. We're not dealing with the English language in general. Yeah, no, definitely not. Not in STEM, but I mean, I think it just needs, we need to keep repeating that this is really specific for STEM. I mean, I've not had experience teaching in other disciplines, so I can't tell. I think, Andrew, you've more, you have more experience than I do. Uh, yes, slightly more, but I, I think what what what's interesting is that working in STEM, you start to realise some of these discussions around general versus specific English teaching as well. Um, that once once you zoom in on on the STEM situation, you realise that specific language is also not really something we can aspire to. We can train people to learn the terminology of their discipline and so on. But I think it's looking at those general principles that will make it accessible beyond disciplines. And this is why we find interdisciplinarity something quite exciting. Um, it's it's where we need to be, I think, as uh, communication specialists. But I've often heard at conferences people talk about sort of really specialising and building the lexicon of a, a certain field, but fields are shifting all the time. Um, we were talking earlier, Hilary and I, about where she was saying that sort of biochemistry, um, biophysics, bioengineering didn't really exist when she was younger. It was biology, it was physics, it was chemistry, it was all separate. I mean, we're seeing just because of the complex nature of um, the real world impact that's needed, unprecedented collaboration, um, AI kind of going across fields into medicine and surgery, um, image detection, identifying um, cancerous uh, cells and so on. So it's just the people of, uh, who we're training, are, are we're preparing them for, for this future. Um, and we're not really interested in the historic communication within a very narrow silo um, of, uh, of a discipline. It's interesting listening to you, Andrew. If I didn't know, if I didn't know you, and if you didn't know me, we could fool the world that we know about things like signal processing. Where in fact, we have absolutely no idea. I mean, I don't even know what it means. And I think that's something that is really important for people working at our end of this field is to understand that you don't. I mean, I'm not going to confess, okay, how little scientific knowledge I have, but I would say that not only do I have very little, but equally, at the level of cutting edge research that we work at, where the research touches the real world, if you like, that level of fast moving, fast developing research, even a brilliant STEM academic in a different field would not be able to understand the science. So one of the things that we are often often saying when we meet other people who are in, in academic communication is that not only do you not need scientific knowledge in order to really, really do a lot and, and work very well in this field, I personally believe that it's you are much better without it in in 
I don't know. I, I know that I wouldn't be able, when I said before, I wouldn't be able to do this in humanities. And that's because I think that the border between the person who is supporting the writer and the writer themselves, how those two work together on the text is very murky. I'm not sure whose ideas actually come out of that process, particularly if the, the, the writer has really serious communication issues. Whereas yep. in science, you're not bothered by that. You don't understand it in any case. And if somebody, if I'm working with, you know, with a PhD student who tries to explain their science to me in order to help me work with them, you know, I find a sharp rap on the knuckles with a steel ruler <laughs> or keep them quiet because I can't do that. You know, I'm trying to ask them questions like, is that important? Why are you mentioning this? What's the what's the central focus? Where are you headed with this information? Why are you telling me this? And I won't understand the answers in terms of science. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Uh, Hiller, I mean, Hillary, it's just amazing because I've been, I I identify entirely with the uh, position that you're talking about of the communicator standing outside the subject. I also work, as my listeners will know, um, with uh, writing scientists. And, and when I get into those conversations that you were just talking about, the PhD, the postdoc, giving me the science background so that I can understand the sentence, I find myself taking these sort of odd placeholders in some sort of a logical framework that I'm forming in my mind as I listen without understanding what the placeholders actually mean, if you get my meaning, <laughs> just so that I could come up with the communicative um, framework within which the sentence or this passage or this entire part of the text needs to happen. Um, so I, I suppose what, what, what I do want to say, though, here, also to give our conversation an, an, another light, gentle push is it, it, you're, you're really shaking things up in the area of um, uh, English for academic uh, purposes. And, and I really love it. Lots of prejudices and notions about, for example, with language teaching, the person must be an L1 speaker to be able to teach it for proper disciplinary um, communication. The person must be a subject matter es- expert for them to be able to teach the communication. These things are just not true. And your work is proof in the pudding, isn't it? I think Andrew, Andrew's work with the, the, you came to us, didn't you, through this uh, NFEAP presentation. That's right, yeah. And mm-hmm. it was Andrew's work with these Imperial Master students, I think that was it was it was a very I mean I don't know Andrew it'd be, be good for you to to maybe talk about that a bit more, but the, um, the those awakenings for your students of the first time they encounter the concept of an unknown and invisible reader I mean for you that was yes that was... Um, absolutely well before I talk about it I just wanted to sort of give a bit of context to that because it's the work that we do at the sharp end with the. Uh, researchers and the senior staff at Imperial um, that really informs our work with uh, undergraduates and master's students. And this is because increasingly, um, this isn't something we're pushing on the departments, this is something the departments are doing themselves. 
um, they're making their assignments more like rehearsals of real world communication. Um, so traditionally, you might think of the dissertation as just being locked into your master's course. But when I come into work with a cohort, the um, course leader or uh, the course tutor is often saying, well, we want this to be more like an authentic piece of communication because we want to prepare students for the real world. And we, having worked, uh, so Hilary and I, having worked with uh, researchers at the sharp end can actually come in and sort of advise them on constructive alignment of their whole course. So it's not just sort of we come in and talk to the students, but we also have productive meetings with these course tutors. And um, this doesn't happen overnight, but over time we can influence how they um, structure the assignment, how they um, give assignment instructions so that they make it um, explicit to the students what's expected, which again makes the students less, um, what causes less pain for the students and less frustration for for the department. And to give you one example, um, there was one department I was working with who wanted to uh, assign a target journal to the students so that they have an idea of the type of writing that they want to do. And naturally, they went for one of the high impact journals in their field. But the writing was much like that example you presented at the beginning, Daniel, it was sort of highly technical, um, not really organized in a way that was accessible. So I advise them to consider other journals um, that model communication, because they were looking at the content, but we, we wanted to model communication so that we could then train the students to move towards that type of communication. So we eventually settled on a journal that um, had a more accessible uh, style of writing. And um, they were able to use this journal as a source for examples, and we were able to bring it into our training when we met with the students. And I think from the student feedback, they saw the relevance of that. It sort of transformed and shifted their perceptions about how they saw the writing process. It was no longer just sort of trying to game the system and get a high grade and anticipate what your supervisor might want. It it was more about um, how do I really communicate? How do real people communicate uh, in this field? And what can I learn from that? And so we used the target journal as a comparison point with the student writing, and we just tried to move them along um, using some of the principles that we've we've discussed from your example at the beginning, um, making sure that they are meeting the conventions of their field, that they are including a narrative, that they're showing the impact of their work, and uh, we move. We just aim to move them along, but more importantly, to change the way that they saw the writing process and to even imagine uh, a real audience and um, this is a lifelong skill it's it's not just for one assignment it's uh, although it is motivating that it's for the dissertation because that is 75 percent of their grade so in the way you're pushing on an open door there because you've got that instrumental motivation but you you can help them do so much more um, than than just succeed on their course essentially what we're looking at with this kind of approach of using if you like using what we're seeing in the in the interface with the real world at high level publication to inform our work with students is is a kind of circular economy where 
nothing that we do is wasted and everything instead of leading up to and developing the skills for writing a piece of research we're looking at how research is successful is successfully written and reverse engineering that back down to various different levels we can reverse it back down break it down to what's appropriate for undergraduates what's appropriate for uh, these these master's students that Andrew was working with writing a, a dissertation as if it was a research article up to PhDs, up to postdocs, and then back out again. So it's it's where, where the way that we're working is where everything is informing everything else. The only way Andrew could come in and, if you like, dare to advise the people running that course which research journal they should be looking at was because he's done you know we all do this hard graft of chewing through loads of research journals every year and and talking about them and developing models and language from them and that gave you know that gives you the the credibility to come in and make that suggestion and that made the whole all of Andrew's input suddenly instead of being an outsider you know he's he's part of a team of a triangle of three three sets of people the students the course tutor and Andrew all pushing in the same direction all as a team working to achieve the best possible outcome you've mentioned the (laughs) you've mentioned the future so many times um where things need to be going. And I think it's entirely clear that your center, um, this circular economy that you talk about, this no wasted effort, all benefiting at each step in the process, these three players that you've just mentioned, for instance, in the um, arenas of education, where you've got the tutors, you've got the students, and then you've got the communication experts, all helping the college you know bring out the next best researchers while at the same time the best researchers right now at the college are benefiting from the same process um it, it's pure efficiency it's 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 how a writing center if we might call it that or a communication center which might su- suit it better needs to look in the 21st century yeah and it, and it hasn't been there before and that's one of the the obstacles we face because as we know, a lot of writers have learned to write um, just by coincidence, really, over time, trial and error. There hasn't been the formal scientific education in writing and communicating. And, and this is something that uh, I think departments are, are waking up to and they're seeing sort of undergraduates as sort of embryonic researchers in a way in STEM fields. And so I think that's where, with this trend, we can really... Uh, come in as communication specialists on an equal footing, so not your usual sort of deficit model of helping those that have issues with language accuracy, but it's really helping everybody and making sure everybody knows um, the principles of communication. And uh, it's not that we don't do any um, sort of English language support for those that need it, but it's that that support's really targeted as well um, within sort of STEM communication and and that doesn't happen by default. So if I'm called in to, to work with a cohort, my first thought is not what grammar points shall I cover, it's how to make them communicate um, effectively and, and write an engaging text that meets the conventions of, of this particular uh, real-world task 
that they're rehearsing for? I think it's also, again, it's good to, to recall, again, how STEM students and STEM writing processes, how different they are. And at Imperial, we have a, a, an anomaly to deal with, which is we're working often with very gifted scientists who have minimal language skills. And so, and I don't think that that would be the case at other universities in, in, in the, the high level humanities, for example, if you look at people who are producing things in, in the history of art, the, the gift, you're unlikely to find somebody who is a, a, a real gift and they're going to be a real high flyer who simply cannot communicate. So this is something, again, that is, I think, peculiar to, to, to science communication and, and doesn't exist in the same way, certainly not in the pure humanities. So I, I, would just, I would just caution against extending many of the things that we've been saying to other disciplines. I think that they can, certainly there's a lot that can be picked up and used in social science, although it would need work to make it fit for purpose. But I, I would I would caution against using our approach and, and our and the way we work with 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 students in the in the pure humanities. I, I don't think it's the same. I don't think you have the same set of people and competences in those areas. Uh, no, and I I think I think that's a, a very a good point to make. I mean, I think we're talking about STEM communication today, and and I think that's also perfectly okay because. The importance of that area of research to everyone's lives is just so phenomenal that uh, any of the contributions that can be made from communication experts to help uh, such people, you know, advance their work is is a noble effort, really. And yet, on the same vein, I would I would still also say that uh, with all of your caveats in place, that. Language is just as an essential part of the research in, say, biology as the essays are, are, as the instruments are, as the statistics are, and so on and so forth. So it's almost like your sort of work where, as you say, the graft, yeah, where you get down and really understand, the, the I, I like the way you put it, the, the sharp end, when you're at the sharp end, really working with the <laughs> working with the research journals and understanding the latest trends, keeping up uh, with how it is that they um, communicate. That is at least implicit, if not explicit, uh, recognition of the fact that research is done in language in most of the STEM fields. Uh, language is unavoidable. It, it, even a mathematics piece is going to have an abstract that's written in, in, in English. And part of the research process is necessarily writing. So, I mean, these things are also equally essential. And reading too. Um, and I think all that time that's spent reading is time that could be oriented towards reading in a way that improves writing. So often it's sort of content reading, but I think one of the main contributions we can make is to turn uh, researchers and students into active readers and um, help them to to do what we do on a day-to-day basis, which is read to switch off from the science for a bit and just look at the communication, look at the scaffold that holds the text together. Um, we call it the narrative wrap, sort of take out the filling and, and just look at the wrap. 
that that holds things in place. And one of the other, um, I'd like to get a little bit back more to uh, the process that that you use. And Andrew, you're you're helping me in that direction by talking about you know noticing in your reading the way that it's written, noticing when you're writing the things that you'd read. I mean, this sort of a of of circle and, and awareness raising that there is a lot to be said for that when it comes to communication. I mean, it's it's I often talk about it to my students and think about it anyway myself uh, as a, a kind of a contrast that is in very that um let me say two different positions that you could take up when it is when you're in the in the in the throes of doing your research you could you could imitate or you could adapt what is there when you're reading for example so if you're imitating you're typically unaware of what you're doing you're doing a sort of mimicry Whereas when you're adapting, you're doing, I think, much more what uh, you mean, Andrew, there of being critical, noticing what's happening. And there you're, in a sense, utilizing. Yeah? I mean, you're taking up tools, bits, you're, you're, you're seeing the tricks, if you like. You're, you're noticing that narrative rap, as you, as you so nicely put it, while you're doing it. Exactly. And I think adapting is a nice way to look at it because imitation has a danger that you're just looking at one model and then you're on shaky territory, as we know, with sort of academic integrity and everything. But if over time you're reading a wide range of articles and you're sort of noticing and and assimilating and even vocabulary acquisition, like so much has, has been said about academic words and so on. But I think the most important thing is to notice where the key points in the text are and how narrow the the range of phrases that I used um, happens to be. So around introducing the research gap, for example, or um, showing the importance of your research field. So you can pretty much predict few research studies have focused on X or Y as a chunk is going to appear in tens, if not hundreds of thousands of hits on Google Scholar, just because it's it's the way that research gaps are introduced and it's one of just a few different ways. So it is really um, not as challenging as, as you might first think to start to acquire the language, but um, there is a danger in imitation of a single source. It is about acquisition through reading and developing your own sort of resource of, of phrases. And that's pretty much what I think Hillary's been doing over um the years that she's been working at Imperial and and has has published in her book as well, just that um, kind of acquiring um, the awareness of of the STEM um, communication features and language and um, the model of of how everything's organised um, in um, research papers, but also in other. Uh, types of, of scientific communication of all research communication and what we're what we're doing in a sense by this i mean you could call it because of course it's correct to call it becoming aware of how information is delivered to you but what you're essentially doing is you're you're you are trying to reverse engineer a successful product to see to, to see actually how has it been done how how have they managed to achieve this successful product that they're putting on the shelf in this high impact journal and what you're doing is is not just looking in a static way at a if you if we do it right and if we train people to begin to notice how information is delivered what we also input into that concept is 
whatever you know today, you've got to be willing to update tomorrow. So you're learning, you're training people in general to be able to do this, not in just what they're seeing at the moment in research, but to be willing to do it and keep upgrading their software, if you like, in, in understanding, because this just changes. And it, it the, the changes come as you kind of, you know, you twist the end of the kaleidoscope and things settle into a different pattern. And the people who were reading a particular type of research in geology suddenly include a whole bunch of people who don't share your peculiar little set of language. And therefore, and everything has, you know, the music changes and everybody has to dance slightly differently next time round. Next time they use these, 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 these these concepts or this language so it's not just about imitation or assisted imitation or adapting imitation it's also being able to do almost being able to do what we do what and what Andrew and I and all the other people in in our group at the Center for Academic English all of us are engaged in the same thing which is is not just learning about what we're seeing today, but using that training, the way we've trained ourselves, continually as things go forward, as things move and, and change. And for us, and you mentioned before, Andrew, being able to see the key points in the text. Uh, we, Andrew and I were talking about this a bit earlier, and we were trying to remember a, a statistic from a piece of research that I've read, which is something like, and I hope I'm getting this, I'm getting close to right, is that it takes around 100 hours to produce a text for publication, to produce the, the average length research article, and that's being quite stingy. It could well take more. But average reading times have dropped over the years to the point where now it's between it averages out between 30 and 40 minutes and that's generous because we know that most people will only look at the title and there's your 10 seconds gone and of those a few will then take a peek at the abstract so that's bumping up the the average quite a lot at that point but the reader needs to be able to access those key points effortlessly as effortlessly as possible and so you need to see how other people how they where they place those key points what language they use to identify them today and be willing as i said again to upgrade again tomorrow to update it next year but we have to we we have to be realistic here in terms of how people consume research, if you like, how they access it, how they consume it, and make sure that those principles, those processes are built into how we train people to create it. So I'm really going off on one here. Uh, no, and and this this is entirely uh, <laughs> this is just a, equally equally interesting. It brings me back to the question of credibility in two areas. This idea that uh, you know you understand the communicative situation in which you know the reader picking up the research article is in and this idea of reverse engineering is i think for the listeners now so very clear that the point that you're making is again a strong argument for as andrew once put it you know opening your eyes you know developing these lifelong skills um i know that uh, it takes 
to establish um, such such a center and such relationships as you have uh, throughout your uh, college, certainly some convincing. And I'm sure there's always another step to broaden your efforts. Uh, you'll often probably run into an academic, an expert, a scientist from somewhere who feels that, well, their publishing record or the way that they teach their courses is, you know, all working, all quite successful. And yet with some of your presentations, some of your communication, you fairly quickly convince these people that, you know, more can be done. We, we can we can improve the way that you're writing now and also in 10 years and the same for your students. So this idea that, you know, you see this as developing, we're all trying to keep up on it. There's no, there's no room for anyone to stand around idle is, in my opinion anyway, certainly increasing your credibility. We're very lucky. We have a, a very strong and supportive director, Julie King, who has established really good relationships with the college and really opened channels between us and and the college to to do what we do in in a very mutually respectful way. So uh, that's an essential component as well. Is that you know you need you need everybody to be on board, and you also need a good director in your in your group, which we're very fortunate we have. Yeah, it's, it's thanks to Julie's vision really of facing the institution and making sure we're relevant to the institution, and really sort of talking to the people who who need us the most who are under pressure to publish research quickly and I think that's how that's a selling point really even if you argue well I've got this long publication record scientists are motivated to improve and they want to improve their their methods all the time and I think the same goes for their writing once you you open their eyes to it especially when you talk about um, increasing the lab to journal speed making them more efficient giving them this future-proof model that they can sort of adapt um, by reverse engineering as they read. I think once they experience that, they they can really see the benefits of it, um, the instrumental benefits as well. They don't need to be linguists. They don't need to be interested in in language. They're just looking for ways to improve as a scientist. And as you say, the writing can't be separated from the science. It's inescapable. there's one word I would like to pick up, though, once more, just briefly, if we could, and that's the word narrative. It's it's appeared throughout our um, interview so far. Uh, you've even had the narrative rap as a nice variation on it. Um, I was speaking with uh, David Payne at, at Nature, and I've spoken with plenty of other people uh, who've written writing guides and have used the word narrative. Uh, Joshua Schimmel is one who comes to mind who I've just interviewed a few weeks ago. And they've all really reported this idea that narrative is important, but scientists don't like the word. <laughs> and I, th- I think what they're driving at is that the, the and, and I see it too, I, I, I sometimes prefer the word message. I'm not sure if it really matters, but I think what some scientists have in mind when you say narrative is story, and then they start to think in the direction of social sciences, humanities, novels, and the, the idea or the strategy doesn't come out as clear for them. Is there anything that you would add to this pr- potential problem area? Well, yeah, I think you've got the point there, especially, you know, you can't write a research paper like a crime novel. You don't want to keep your readers in suspense. You sort of want to tell them straight away what's important and significant. And 
um, because as Hilary said, the reading is not, they don't read linearly to the end. For the most part, they read the title or the abstract. So it's really got to jump out and, and really sort of hit them um, straight away. So uh, yes, I, I can see why they might, um, well, what we mean by, by narrative really is just to make something comfortable for the reader, make it so that the reader is able to access the science and um, I think Hillary often say it, it's not that we ask scientists to make it possible for the reader to understand their research and its impact, but that they make it impossible for them not to understand. And so uh, we, when we talk about narrative, we talk about um, separating, what well, not just putting the content down on the page, but actually thinking about how to organize it for a reader and how to make sure that the reader can follow along um, because it's often difficult to take yourself out of your own mind and put yourself in the seat of the reader um, who's not working day to day um, with your research. And I think they appreciate when we frame it that way. But yeah, if, if we talk in terms of storytelling, then that might um, turn some of them off, perhaps. I don't know, Hilary, did you have... I mean, look, I know in, in the book, I certainly wouldn't use the word narrative on its own because I'm not convinced uh, as you are, uh, as the same as you, Daniel, I'm not convinced about the idea of a narrative as a selling point to, to people who want to communicate science. But I think of it as, as a narrative wrap around the content. In other words, if you, and that can even include things like a particular verb tense is part of the narrative wrap because it communicates whether something is, let's say, always true or was true on one occasion. So for, for us, it's really if you take out, I mean, almost in, in a very, uh, let's say, in a, in a very gross sense, take out the science nouns, if you like, and just re replace them with, with gobbledygook. What it, it, what's left? And what's left are things like sentence-to-sentence sentence linkage that means that you can move from one piece of information to the next. It's verb tense, it's choice of passive and active. All those things are, for me, part of the wrap. What is wrap? What wraps the content? What the content is wrapped up in and how it is delivered to the reader so that they unwrap the content through all those things, through verb tense through commenting language i mean commenting on the you know winner quality quantity saying something was well over 50 percent is is part of a narrative because what it does is it shows if you say it's well over three percent suddenly that number sounds big and therefore well over is a narrative trick if you like it's part of the narrative wrap because it's delivering the raw data anything that delivers the raw data can't do it just with a, an information chip you have to wrap it up in words and it's the choices you make about how you wrap it that's the narrative whether it's focusing on starting a sentence with with um, very overt narrative structures like it, it is it is important to note that okay, there's a very overt one but equally as I said saying that uh, commenting on the quantity even words like only are part of a narrative wrap. Anything where the writer is speaking to the reader about the data, about the content, 
that's the narrative. And and that about I find is is so important. I, I like this idea of a rap because. Um, and also, as Andrew, you're saying this idea that you need to get out of your own mind and somehow enter into the minds of others, which is impossible really for all of us, even the best of novelists or poets, right? I mean, this isn't <laughs> this isn't something we just do, you know, casually. Um, so it's not like a, a specific scientific problem, but I mean, scientists probably are less aware of some of those moves that could be made uh, because of their uh, deep expertise. And I think one of the things that's worth pointing out to a writer, any writer, but let's let's talk about STEM writers, is that you always have more than your reader. You, on any one data point, on any one result, on any one interpretation, will have a thousand things going on in your mind. Your reader will only, though, have one, and that is the words that you've just put in front of him or her. So in other words... It, it, and so in other words, it's you've got to take up with this narrative rap idea, just as you do. You've got to take up this uh, this classic rhetoric of who is my audience? Yeah. Yeah, I think this is why you know, when we work both with research groups, but also with um, students, it's creating a writing community and training them to uh, peer review and also to kind of look at writing in a different way and then apply it to each other. Because as you say, you're not going to get very far if you're just writing in a solitary way. You always need those comments. And ideally, before you, you submit and get them from, from the reviewer, you, you want a colleague who's got a sort of eye on your writing but is not so familiar with your science. And, and as Hilary says, that's why it doesn't matter what we know. It's better in a way that we don't know science at all because we can then uh, give that honest opinion. But another thing is when we're looking at the narrative, we often find that it becomes clear what assumptions um, people are making when they're writing. And, and we kind of correct those because a lot of the writing education that they've done has probably told them to write in a way that impresses. So to use a lot of synonyms and to try and avoid repetition. But when we take out the science and we look at the narrative rap, we actually find what holds together the text is, is the repetition. Uh, without that repetition, the reader would not be able to track key concepts. And so it's kind of making sure that they're not still operating on under that assumption that they need to change their verb for the sake of it, for example, and have that idea that any verb will do. If they want to write about the implications of their work, the verb suggest is, is a good choice because it's it's so frequently used to do that. It signals to the reader to the to the global reader who's who's familiar with that verb, so there's no need to take out your thesaurus. So your, your thesaurus is is your worst enemy in in that sense as a science writer. And so we try to get that across to them as well um, in in constructing their narrative and and not to worry about the repetition, but to embrace it as a a way to um, engage and um, help the reader through the text. I think you strike on a really important point there, Andrew, this idea that uh, people are often told that, you know, you impress with your writing somehow. And that doesn't, um, surely people who are writing in STEM want to impress in certain ways, but the way that they have in mind this idea, for, for instance, of using synonyms instead of, you know, the same word is not really the way that you're going to impress in STEM. I, I was speaking with Christopher Theis, who's put out a, a new book about a, a new writing guide on on scientific communication and he said well think about this your average stem um, phd or even masters yeah 
probably the last time they had any intensive writing instruction was in high school, in America anyway, right? And I would imagine the situation is probably going to be similar in, in Britain. And what was it that they were writing there? They were writing essays. <laughs> now, what the essay has to do with you know, a, a budding research article or an actual research article is, well, I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb here. Absolutely nothing, right? <laughs> I mean, it may well be that in an essay you want to vary up uh, expression because that's an, the entertainment for the reader. But if we think back to the example that we gave at the in the introduction to uh, to our interview here, why would you vary from cell extrinsic level to outside the cell? Um, because you mean cell extrinsic level, so that's that's your word, right? That's precision. It's counterproductive because all it will do is confuse your reader, particularly the global reader, who will wonder whether this is now something slightly different. So you're you're achieving nothing, and in fact, you're you're reducing the communicative effectiveness of what you're trying to say so that that's definitely something that we bang on about the whole time and that's of course a huge leap from learning to write essays where you're upgraded on the range of words that you can use to science writing which is essentially i mean in this you know austin's performative concept it's it's the the words are the thing it's as close as you're going to get to the thing itself in the same way as in law law is super precise and uses exactly the same words to express exactly the same concepts because the words are the thing itself and you're not going to be able to get to the thing (laughs) the, the lab experience so the best you can do is to represent it consistently across or using consistent terminology throughout for sure but coming back to i mean what we were talking about narrative for a moment it's certainly the case that we've developed enough confidence I think, I hope, we're not doing this inappropriately, to very often say even to the highest level of academics, academic researchers at the end of a sentence, well, so what? Why are you telling me this? And that's what, and what Andrew was saying about people, everybody within that micro community already knowing what they're writing about and knowing the background and knowing the, knowing the field. If you can't give your information a function, information has no function unless or until the writer tells the reader what its function is. And they do this via the narrative. Otherwise, the reader doesn't know what to do with that piece of content. So, I mean, they're the old adage is that science doesn't exist until it is communicated. But we would say, you know, Science doesn't exist until it's communicated effectively as well. Well put. Well put. And, 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 and I, an example to back uh, up exactly what you're saying, this idea that if you don't give the information a function, then it's not being effective. Um, you're not actually communicating. Here in Heidelberg, uh, one of the major focuses in the uh, biosciences is wind signaling. Now, Hillary, like you, and Andrew, like you, I can say these things. I don't know. I don't know what they are. <laughs> but but the, the reason I'm saying it is because it's a very tight community. Um, it's a very small set of people who are or, who are, are publishing on this area. And I noticed after having about four or five postdocs who were working in the lab that they all began their research articles with a variation of the exact same paragraph. And by the fourth one, I said. 
why are you writing what everyone else is writing? And, and, and her answer to me was, well, because that's the way that these articles on wind signaling always start. <laughs> and of course, I checked it up, and and, and she was she was right. That was all. They were all paraphrasing each other, and and this is one of those cases where, I mean, this information now has lost its function. It's 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 a, it's literally a formality. It's like the beginning of a sonnet sequence in the 16th century where Her Majesty is praised for three pages. <laughs> it's true, and if I was remember that similarly working on with somebody who was. Um, working on malaria vaccines and all the articles picking with the same sentence, which is the statistic, the number of people who die every year from malaria and the percentage of those that are children. It's, it's across the board. It's the same thing. But then you have to ask yourself, well, what would happen if they dump that paragraph? You know, maybe it's a way, maybe it's an entry point for people outside the field. I mean, I would like to ask you, is there a definition of wint or the application area of wint in that first paragraph? Because if there is, that's the hook on search engine optimization that will bring in the interdisciplinary reader. I'm guessing here, but it could be. I, 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 I'm, I'm also willing. Uh, I couldn't re- recall the paragraph, unfortunately. <laughs> I, I was spending, I was, I was spending more time remembering those sonnets from the 16th century. <laughs> but, in any, but in any case, you're entirely right. Right? It has. It may have its purpose, but the, but the more key point is is that to blindly take over such passages of text is not necessarily serving each individual author's purpose. Yeah, and if it's a reflex like that, that takes away that sort of awareness we want to build, which is, you know, why are you saying this here? And, you know, if, if there's a good reason to do it, sure. But if it's just because that's what everyone else does, or that's because somebody told me to do it, then that's not a legitimate reason because it's not thinking about your imagined reader and their needs. Well, Hilary and Andrew, you've been uh, very generous with your time. I, I'd like uh, to give you the one last question. And um, I'm thinking of really probably the modesty with which you've presented so much of what you've done. I saw that, for instance, your thesis uh, writing retreat uh, has won a Guardian Award, and you've definitely expanded your program out into the entire Imperial and, and, and done some fantastic work there with students all the way up to faculty. Um, but I'm interested in you leaving off. Um, how has all of this sort of work, which is so specialized and special, how has it affected you? Well, yeah, first of all, on, on modesty, I hope, yeah, on the individual level that we haven't sort of missold it as something, you know, that I think this is achievable for anybody, but it is it is a lot of hard work. And I think it's this hard work that sort of brings us us pleasure and, and we're learning all the time so there's there's still lots of gaps in our knowledge that we're just working to address because we know that there's technolo- technology driven change in in stem communication and and that's keeping us on our toes keeping us uh, learning filling in gaps in our knowledge uh, new disciplines are emerging new institutes uh, new schools like the school of design is, is relatively recent in our institution um PhD students often tell me that there's no real base of literature in their field. They have to look in other fields, so they need to be able to access uh, research from from different areas. So we're aware of all of this because we have our ear to the ground, because we've, um, under um, Julie, our director's guidance, we've we've started to work with um, academics at Imperial and understand um, these changes that are happening, and, and in turn, those academics give us confidence by 
sort of introducing us to their researchers, to their students, and and really kind of promoting the work that we do as well. A lot of it is quite serendipitous, but I think that's probably just how our institution, how STEM kind of operates. Um, I often listen to the Life Scientific podcast, and the scientists always just say, um, I have no idea how I got into my research field. It was just serendipity. So that, that does seem to be what happens. But what I would say is it keeps us energized. It keeps us agile. Hopefully that's come across in this interview. We really enjoy sort of working together, pointing out what we learn to each other. It's very much a collaborative um, shared experience where we're all developing together. Um, it, was, it was thanks to Hilary really that I've developed most of what I know. So I'm, I'm really oh, happy so to be uh, <laughs> trained to, to teach this um, writing research paper course, which then opened um, my eyes to how I could help or better help um, students in the college as well. I would say it's it's embarrassingly exciting. How do we feel about it? We're, we're, we're party bores. You know, I think nobody dares to, to ask us about our work in any kind of social context because we just find it so fascinating and it's endlessly new. And as a group, we're very... Um, we're very mutually supportive and mutually respectful and we we learn from each other we learn something new every day and I think that's probably for us it's an exciting area to work in with an enormous amount of scope and we feel very valued actually by our institution but as we keep saying it's on the back of graft sadly We'd like to do it without the graft, but there's no option there. But I think it's the, the fact that it's always new, the fact that we don't we can't use and reuse materials is the best fun. It's the absolute best fun to be working in something that's changing. It's almost like being a scientist yourself. Haha, <laughs> not quite. But uh it's it's always new. It's always. Uh, new. I don't put down the communication side. I, <laughs> I, I, that, I I think I think that's a wonderful way to leave that off. That's that's fantastic. Um, well, thank you very much. That is um, Hillary uh, Glassman Deal and Andrew Northern, teachers of academic English, or really, as we've made clear, I think STEM communicators and facilitators of STEM communication, at the Center for Academic English, Imperial College London. You can visit the center at imperial.ac.uk/slash academic hyphen English imperial dot AC UK slash academic hyphen English. I'm Daniel Shea and this is goodbye from me to Hillary and Andrew. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye, Daniel. Thanks for having us on. Many thanks. And this is goodbye to all of you. Bye-bye. And until next time here on Scholarly Communication.